You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Episode 98, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun, informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Wayne Weingarten, a senior fellow in business and economics at the Pacific Research Institute, and we're going to discuss a program we haven't discussed yet on the show, which is a 340B prescription medication plan set up by the federal government in the 1990s. I think you'll find this dovetails nicely with our discussions on pharmacy benefit managers and other distortions caused by, well, we'll say the government, but just basically bad policy that was set and unintentionally caused havoc in the market. And it ends up not only not helping people that we want to help, but actually probably harms those we're looking to help. But as we approach episode 100 of the show, which, uh, you know, I'd always set my links so that they would have three digits with hope that it would provide some extra motivation for me to continue the show, despite what might happen in life. And certainly, as you've, if you've been a long time follow the show, a lot has happened in my life since the beginning of the show. Uh, but we are approaching 100, and I would like to thank those who have financially supported the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash theparadox. That's P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S. Your support is not only helpful financially to keep the show running, but also really to provide that motivation to continue the show and to provide good content and quality interviews and to just keep me going, which is probably the best motivation that you can have. Uh, so I'd like to specifically thank the patrons, Dr. Anthony Perry, Dr. Brian Mooney, Dr. Belina Mott, uh, State Board of Education member Tom McMillan, Deanna Yen, Dan Kalkoff, Jill Klaproth, Nicholas Mark- Markey, and Lucas Dara. A number of you have actually had discussions with and, at a minimum, conversations through email, and you've provided show ideas that I think I've tried to honor and to bring to the light, and I've learned more by talking to people that you've suggested. So I would like to thank all of you and any of you who want to join in the financial support, but really, even if you don't want to financially support the show, but if you want to send show ideas, people you think I should interview, 
I've had some of my best interviews of people who actually had no idea what existed and then reached out to and, and spoke to. So I, I think that's added to the show's diversity and the subject matter that we cover, which has broadened my understanding of the medical system. And I learn a lot just from guests and oftentimes I get show ideas from guests themselves. And that's where actually today's guest was from a couple of weeks ago, gave me the idea for talking about the 340B program, which I was not aware of. And I'm sure most of us, you aren't either. So I think it'll be a great opportunity to learn and at least understand a little bit better some of the problems that we face in medicine. Like all of you, I'm trying to figure out the COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 infection versus a disease state and what exactly to do, how it affects our lives and sort of how to navigate things. You know, we have a child in college, we've got one now in freshman high school, and so we're navigating those spaces like most of you who are parents or grandparents watching these kids go through these things and just trying to get back to some sort of semblance of normalcy. And so I will continue to discuss that. I'm not going to try and get all COVID discussions because it drives me bananas, but it also is something that I am interested in. I do watch quite a bit to try and learn more about it. And I feel like in the last week or two, I've had a little better understanding of what's going on because immunology is one of those classes you take in medical school, which unless you um, plan on doing for the rest of your career, a lot of it kind of just goes in one year and comes out the other. You remember white cells, you remember killer cells, helper T cells, B cells, uh, but CD8, CD4, and things that certainly apply to HIV at the time, which is much less of a discussion nowadays, but it's sort of immunologically important. Anyway, uh, I've been forced to relearn a lot of that stuff, and it's been good, but um, it also shows that my overall lack of understanding of a lot of things with the human body, and even, even people who are experts in this uh, have a difficult time explaining most of the processes because it is incredibly complex and unpredictable. And anyway, so it's made this time of the p pandemic really difficult to understand for public policy makers, politicians. And so I will cut them some slack uh, to a certain extent. But I think uh, when it comes to the science and medicine, it's really it's really hard to understand. And because we don't know, and we've never, none of us have lived through this before, it's making it extra hard for all of us. So I hope you have patience with others as I am trying to do best myself. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Wayne Weingarten from the Pacific Policy Research Institute, where we talk about the 340B program. Enjoy. Well, hey, I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Wayne Weingarten. He's a senior fellow in business and economics at the Pacific Research Institute, as well as the director of PRI Center for Medical Economics and Innovation. His policy research explores the connection between macroeconomic policies and economic outcomes with a focus on fiscal policy, the healthcare industry, and the energy sector. As the director of the Center for Medical Economics Innovation, Dr. Weingarten spearheads research and advances policies that support the continued viability and vitality of the U.S. medical and pharmaceutical industries to the benefit of patients and overall economic growth. His columns has been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Tribune, Investors Business Daily, Forbes.com, and USA Today. He's been a previous economics faculty at Marymount University, testified before Congress, and has been interviewed and quoted in all sorts of media like CNN, Bloomberg Radio, and he's been presented at many conferences for his research findings. Dr. Weingarten is going to discuss the uh, Healthcare Act of 1992 and specifically 340B section and its uh, implications in the healthcare policy landscape right now. So Dr. Weingarten, thank you so much for joining The Paradox. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, why don't we just get right into it? Uh, you've, I've, the paper that's, that I stumbled into, uh, which I thought was really great and helps explain a lot of the problems we're having today and 
I'd like you to sort of just expand on that if you could. Uh, why don't you go into, I guess, what 340B is, how it came about, and you know, maybe it's basic history. Well, uh, you know, 340B, I think, is a, is a perfect uh, beast of Washington, D.C., uh, in, in the sense, it's named after the uh, the part of the tax code. So you know, what <laughs> great naming it has. Uh, you know, essentially, you know, three forty B has uh, like the impetus is trying to do the right thing, uh, uh, but it's also, I guess, a demonstration of the unintended consequences of government policies and how you know one policy creates a problem. So we always come up with a different solution, which only creates more problems. And we get into these cycles of, you know, policies that, you know, try to address one thing and you're always squeezing the air in the, in the balloon and popping up someplace else. And I think that's a great way of framing what 340B is. So where it comes from is before we had um, the, the Medicaid reforms of 1990, you had drug companies that would sell uh, the, their products to uh, what they call disproportionate share hospitals. So basically hospitals that serve people who are of low income and they have a hard time affording the drugs. And so the company sold it to the, the hospitals at huge discounts so you can get the medicines uh, to the people who needed it. Well, when the 1990 reforms came about, they created what they called the Medicaid best price uh, and requirement. And that requirement basically said, whatever price you sell someplace else, you know, we get the best price, hence the name. Well, if you're giving it cheaply to these hospitals that were the serving lower income people, and you could do it because it was a small share, you can't sell that loss inducing price to literally 20, 25% of the entire kind of population. So they sure. start selling at a discount. Without those discounts, the, you know, basically government came in and created 340B, which created or forced those discounts to be sold into those hospitals. And so, yeah, this is the classic, the classic example of instead of addressing the, the, the I guess the, uh, the heart or the root of the issue, you sort of just take on the branches and then something else springs up. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, it, before we kind of get too much into the details, I think that perspective is so important. The idea that it, it, the government has this habit of we have people who need financial help. Instead of giving direct financial help to the people, the most direct response is typically the best way to address a problem. We have we come up with all these creative ideas of all these circular ways of, of, of achieving it, and those create unintended consequences that more often than not create larger problems than the one you're intending to fix. Right. And, you know, I think the, the most recent, the CARES Act, the as we're speaking now in middle of 2020, this terrible year, <laughs> the, the CARES Act, which is the large giant behemoth bill that came out of Congress, there's a lot of relief money and very little of it actually went to people. It went to businesses, corporations, and all sorts of different you know entities. Because quite frankly, I think, you know, when it, looks, when it comes to lobbying and when it comes to legislation, the people who have the lobbying power and the, who are the ones who write legislation, the regulations are the ones with, you know, the, that make sure that the ones that get the money, right? The people who would most benefit from it don't actually get it or they can only get receive it indirectly. And right. So that's sort of the, the issue that you're pointing to. Exactly. So why don't you go into, I, you know, I guess you, you've laid out that you've set the table. So there was a, the people, the drug companies used to sell drugs at a, a discounted price to, to, um, to, 
low income hospitals, I guess, those are probably like mostly charity case hospitals. I imagine like county hospitals and lots of probably Catholic hospitals that are in inner cities and or out in the uh, like Indian reservations and things like that, I would assume. And so how is that different with, um, well, I guess what changed? Um, effectively, over time, you know, you were talking about lobbyists or you, you had the Affordable Care Act changes. And so uh, the uh, requirements were kind of the, um, can't think of the word, <laughs> the qualification the word, uh, for the program were expanded. So eligibility widened. And so what is started as a program that was intended to be focused on hospitals serving um, uh, lower income populations has really expanded. So now you, you have a majority of hospitals and uh, covered entities, it's, probably, it's actually not a majority, but you have a very large uh, proportion of, of those uh, hospitals that are now what they call 340B entities. So the number of entities have actually, between the last like, 10 years, have actually tripled if you think of that. Uh, so you've had this huge expansion of the program, which means that the costs of the program have increased and the program creates all sorts of adverse incentives. And those incentives, they increase costs elsewhere in the healthcare system. They have a bias towards um, higher cost medicines. Um, and you actually even have, because of uh, inadequate kind of oversight, you actually have the program serving patients who are not, you know, or, or not low income, who aren't the intention of the program. And you actually have instances where patients who are lower income, who should be paying less for their drugs, aren't benefiting from the program at all. The money is going into the hospital system um, or, or into the contract pharmacy that's associated with the, the, the system, but the actual costs for the uninsured or low income person isn't being reduced. So you have all of those adverse consequences and then we can go into each one and why they exist but you have all those happening because the programs it just exploded beyond what its intention was and the oversight has been inadequate and so you really have basically uh, too many institutions gaming the system uh, and basically uh, using it as a profit center which is not its intention right so you had so you had a drug companies at one time were selling drugs at a discount rate to certain hospitals. And then when the Congress passed a law, it said that you have to offer this, if you have a, the lowest price, wherever it is that you have to offer that to a Medicare drug company said, well, that's unfeasible for us to, to offer that price to the large Medicaid population. So they stopped offering low, uh, low discounted drugs to charity hospitals in order to fix that. Congress said, well, if you're a charity hospital, you can actually get around this. And then what's happened is basically people said, oh, we're actually a charity hospital, right? So now there are so many more charity hospitals designation than before. And they use this as a way of charging. It sounds like to me they're charging the same price to for these medications as they were before, but now they're buying them at a discounted rate. And so they have a, there's a larger profit margin. And since they're charging the higher rate or the regular rate, I guess that it was before they became a charitable hospital, the people who actually needed it can't afford it now. <laughs> so they're not, they're not benefiting from it. Is that, is right. that and, and, and the way that works, right. So, so basically if you're a, a manufacturer uh, and you're going to participate because uh, basically Medicaid, uh, you can't participate in Medicaid or Medicare if you don't 
um, uh, you know, participating in 340B. So it's, you know, it's, you know, as the, uh, the Godfather might say, it's just an offer that you can't refuse. Uh, and, and so what happens is you, you, you'll sell to the hospital at, you know, um, 50% discount, sometimes even higher than that, of what the actual price is. But the hospital, when they charge back to the, uh, to the payers, can charge full price. So that spread between the 50% discount that you can purchase the drug for and the reimbursement at market rates, that's the profit. This sounds a lot like the pharmacy benefit managers and how the, the role they play yeah, with a, with with a altering drug prices with their, um, I'll use my air quotes here, drug rebates, you know, their kick, which basically are kickbacks, uh, and that it incentivizes them then to sell actually to have more expensive medications on their formulary uh, just because their percentage rebate that they actually will pocket is a you know, it's larger. So if you, you know, a $10 drug, if you get half it back, it's $5. If you sell that same, the same medication that does the same thing for a hundred dollars, you get $50 back. So there's incentive for the company actually to sell more expensive drugs than they provide lower cost alternatives that may be just as effective. No, that, that, that is, and that is a big part of the problem, but uh, where it gets worse is uh, uh, oncology practices where the drugs can cost thousands of dollars. Uh, and now you know now now you know a billion here, a billion there. Now you know eventually you get real money. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's the type of uh, of place where we're pushing this. And so, not only do you have an, a, an incentive to you know to to use the most expensive drug, which harms patients because the patients' co-pays and their co-insurance are typically based on the price of the drug. So right. if you tend to use the more expensive drug. Now you're pushing higher costs unnecessarily onto patients who pay high copay, high coinsurance, not even aware of, of this obscure program. And then you have the incentive, especially for oncology practices, that you, if you're a 340B institution, you want to get as many uh, of the private practices to be part of your hospital system as, as you could, because you're an independent uh, physician practice, you are not eligible for the program. If you become part of the hospital system, the hospital is 340B, you are part of the program. So you could actually, by buying up, and I keep referring to oncology because the, the cost of the drugs makes that uh, practice very profitable to uh, to combine with the hospital system and 340B, uh, to, to go out and to have this consolidation. And, and, and this is part, not all, but part of the reason we see a lot of the uh, consolidation out there in the industry you know, you buy practices, and all of a sudden, all of these patients who were taking all of these expensive drugs that weren't eligible for 340B, now you're getting this huge profit off of those uh, off of those patients. Yeah, these the distortions caused by these um, these I don't I probably not fair to call them schemes, but maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's fair. Uh, it's it's really remarkable, and it and it's um, insidious. You don't you don't really see them. It's not obvious why. That oncology practice is so lucrative or so um, so highly sought after by these health systems, much like you see cardiology practices that, that are suddenly sought after, sought after because for the same reasons or different reasons, but the same sort of, I guess, distortions caused by the government payers, you know, they can charge a higher fee for that, that treadmill or that stress echocardiogram or whatever it might be because... Now they're part of a heart uh, health system. They can charge much higher rates to Medicare th as if they're part of a facility versus if they're an independent 
freestanding practice. So all these sorts of the consolidation, there are sort all sorts of different reasons, but this is certainly one that sounds like with certain practices, especially like ones that have expensive infusions, I imagine rheumatology would be another one or uh, where you have expensive drugs. There's that, that incentive to corporatize or consolidate all these and get rid of these independent practice uh, practitioners. Well, absolutely. And, and I think it's important to emphasize what we're talking about this, that it's, there, there are no villains in this sense. It's just, we're all caught in a really bad system and everyone is dealing with different mandates and different uh, excessive costs. And so everyone's trying to survive in a, a system that, uh, that makes no sense in, in, in so many ways. When you have that uh, kind of those incentives, you know, you, you, you're going to pursue those things that, that keep you afloat, that can kind of cover all of these fixed costs that, you know, comes from our third party payer system or, you know, and so, you know, now we're getting to the need for, for broader reforms, but I think that is important to, to recognize that it's the system that is the problem. Right. Yeah. I, there's no Emperor Palpatine who's, who's got this all, you know, figured out right. and is you know, rubbing <laughs> the hands together in a dark room or, but, uh, but yeah, the, the system is designed accidentally, I suppose. I mean, some people might say it's more nefarious, but it's probably more of an accidental design or just one that is an expectation with a very complicated government mandated, um, you know, it's like a Rube Goldberg device. And, and so you're just looking at your little tiny corner of ways to maximize and your survival, like you said, and this is just one way to find profits in a, and everyone's doing this in all business. And I think, you know, healthcare is no different, whether it's for profit or nonprofit system, they, they behave identically as far as to right. uh, the incentives for making money. Right. It's almost like the, you know, the old thing, you know, camel is a horse designed by committee. <laughs> The, or the platypus, right? Is that the other? Way? Uh, exactly. So, uh, explain some of the other problems aside from the fact that it, this that this program leads to extra consolidation. Uh, what other sort of issues do you, does three forty B cause? Well, I think one of the more nefarious um, problems is the cost shifting beyond the things that we've talked about. Because uh, again, the the cost of innovation is what the cost of innovation is, and so when you have more and more of the of the patients or the hospitals being covered under 340b getting prices that are uneconomical uh, those costs don't disappear and, and i think that's really important to to recognize that uh what ends up happening is the costs get shifted and so if you're if your population that's getting that discount is growing then the population that isn't getting that discount, well, their costs are going to end up rising. And so you, you, you see this, this impact in terms of that cost shifting uh, that 340B is creating. So you're not actually reducing costs for the system. Um, you're, you're, you're shifting the costs. The, the other problem that you have, and this is something, again, we're getting to the, the details of the program or the weeds of the program, but you've had this explosion in what they call contract pharmacies. So originally, you know, you had the provision of contract pharmacies because some of the, the disproportionate share hospitals, they perhaps didn't have a pharmacy uh, on, you know, on site. And so okay. you could have one, the idea was really one pharmacy offsite that you were contracting with that the patients could go and they would be participating. Well, that's been expanded. So now hospitals can have thousands of uh, contract pharmacies associated with them. And in fact, those contract pharmacies there are many of them are, by the way, not even in low-income areas. 
much of the expansion of those contract pharmacies continues to be in upper middle class or middle class areas that, you know, again, the program is not intended uh, to help. And so you, you end up where a patient would go there and the pharmacist doesn't know whether or not this individual patient is uh, you know, eligible for 340 is eligible. And certainly patients are unaware and you end up where patients who are supposed to be getting the discounts don't, right? So you're not actually lowering costs for those in need. And actually you're getting the 340B sale to many patients who, again, you're not differentiating, who, again, the program is not intended to help. So you're actually spending money on um, patients who shouldn't be part of it. And the benefit isn't actually directly going to help the patients that this whole program is intended uh, to help. So you have both of those things going on or problems going on. And it's either a waste of money on one end or you're not actually effectively helping those who need to be helped. You know, I think those uh, problems are amongst all of the reasons to uh, look at reforming the system. I think those problems scream at the top in terms of why we need to address the problems here. When you when you discuss contract pharmacies, you're not talking, you know, a hospital will have its pharmacy, they'll they'll sell the sort of drugs oftentimes. I know our hospital system removed their pharmacies, uh, I guess. I mean, they have an inpatient pharmacy, but basically they have an outpatient pharmacy that actually, I guess it's through a local, uh, it's a local pharmacy chain. And that was a decision. I think they just kind of like leasing out the space. So are you saying that these, these are some very large pharmacies that are somehow qualifying as serving as underserved because maybe they end seven of their 27 locations there in, you know, low income neighborhoods or something like that. And then it, they can reflect that same price throughout their entire system, even though most of their sales might not even be in those, those neighborhoods. It's not necessarily the entire system, but yes, you have uh, CVS, Walgreens. I mean, the, the, <laughs> Yeah, they're not small. <laughs> yeah, not not small at all. Now, yeah, you know, it's not the cost the entire system, uh, but yes, I mean the basic premise is exactly what you're saying. I mean, the the, the fact that these major, uh, you know, players in the business and uh, again are, are profiting from it is just outside the intention of the of the program. And it's but it, it is what happens when government gets involved, in particular, when government gets involved in an indirect way. And you create loopholes and incentives for organizations to go through those loopholes, that's what's going to happen. So when you opened up uh, the contract pharmacy clause and allowed it to expand, you were just inviting this type of, of ex- I don't, you know, expansion of the program in an, in an unwarranted way. And then with the hospitals, you mentioned that they, in the last 10 years they tripled. And I'm, I'm, 99.9% covered entities, covered entities. So I'm reason, yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm almost hundred percent certain that there was not an expansion uh, into in low income areas of these entities. <laughs> like they didn't just start building a bunch of hospitals and pharmacies in, you know, on Indian reservations and in the inner city. So how did this happen? I mean, it, you said there's less oversight, but I mean, there have to be some sort of requirements for qualifying for this. And do they just not care anymore or do hospitals just find a more creative way of finding themselves as eligible? Well, no. In effect, you've when you change, especially with the Affordable Care Act, when you changed the requirements, that kind of uh, that change allowed the expansion. So the idea was 
well, maybe one contract pharmacy is not enough, so we need to give people more convenience. And there is obviously something to that where it might be difficult for someone to get um, medications at uh, the, the site that's right near the hospital. So sure. there's, again, uh, often these things, the genesis from it is in a, a valid issue, uh, but uh, it, it's just been taken to the extreme. So, you know, you, you take a, a problem that is real, that you know, people may have a difficulty getting to that one site, especially if they don't have a, a car or means to, to get to the facility conveniently. But through trying to address that issue, you've created a whole, whole uh, new program. Right. So I guess, you know, when you look at this, if we agree that this is a problem, and I, I think most people listening to this would probably agree that this is a problem, there are two ways one could approach fixing it. One is you could say, well, we need greater, we need greater regulatory oversight. We need to have um, some more rules put in place that are going to make it more, uh, make it more clear what is and is not a valid entity and to limit the way that the drug pricing works. And we're going to have to have some people, who, regulators who are watching the drug pricing of these low, these cheaper alternatives and make sure that they're available to people with low income. That'd be one way to, to fix the problem, which would be, which require a lot more, you know, infrastructure, I guess, from the, the government. But I'm guessing that's not your solution. What would your solution to fixing this problem be? Well, I, I think, well, to some extent, right, if you look at what's the political, politically feasible solution, well, and I think right. about our, uh, what you're talking about, well, you, you need a, a stricter definition on the patients, you need stricter hospital eligibility criteria, you need to clamp down on contract pharmacies and consolidation to make the program work as intended, right? So if this is the way we're going to help low-income patients afford uh, their medicines, then, you know, we need to make the program work as intended, work for hospitals. Remember, and I haven't mentioned this, but many of these hospitals, they call them disproportionate share hospitals. I'm sure many listeners know that term. Uh, many of these aren't actually providing any more charity care uh, then your average hospital, many are providing less. So your, your targeting of these hospitals is just way off. And so that oversight to, to ensure the hospitals are serving the mission, I, I think that is the politically um, palatable or politically reasonable solution. My preferred solution is that if you want to help low-income patients with health care, then deal directly with low-income patients. Whenever you add in that middle person, whether it's the hospital or farm, whatever case, the, these types of complications and uh, kind of misdirections and adverse incentives are going to multiply. And so it, it, in any issue, right, the best way to address a problem is head on. So if the problem is that a patient has insufficient income to afford insurance or their medicines, whatever the case is, then we need to give resources directly to those uh, patients. And I think that would be a much more uh, streamlined way of dealing with it uh, and would avoid many of the problems. Uh, it's also politically probably a non-starter. Uh, it would require fundamentally rethinking the way we, we do healthcare, which by the way, we need to, but you know, again, being politically uh, kind of astute, you, you realize that the, the first step has to be to reform 340B to make it work as intended. 
because it has so overstepped its bounds that it's, again, increasing costs elsewhere, imposing costs on patients, all of these adverse effects, we're already seeing that uh, way too much. Yeah. Well, I'd like to explore that just one bit, another step further. So if you're you're right that it would be transforming the healthcare system, but in many ways it's transforming the welfare system, right? I mean, uh, instead of having agencies provide the funds to do whatever it is, like, you know, get your health care or get your medications or whatever it might be, you'd actually just be sending, I don't know, you could just say, we're just going to send a direct a check to someone uh, and you mm-hmm. can use that. You know, we're going to send you $100 for your medications. And I guess it, the, I guess the question you have to ask is, would they would these people use the $100 for their medications or would they just use $100 on something else, which is, you know, not what the intended target is of that of that those funds. And do you have any idea for if you've ever looked at it as far as what would be more I mean how much money is spent I guess in delivering that $100 worth of benefits to the person uh, versus you know I mean do you have to set up like five times that in infrastructure and so maybe even if you have more fraud and waste at the end it's still far less expensive and simpler to administer to just send a direct money for you know medications uh, you know the overseeing these types of income support payments is something that exists already. Um, to take a, a slightly different example, so we'll go off topic for a moment if I can. Uh, food stamps, sure, right, is again necessities, right? Food, shelter, medicine. Uh, you people are afraid that if I give income to someone, they won't use it for food; they'll use it for some other unintended purpose, and they don't want that. So you give food stamps instead. Well, well what happens? People sell their food stamps at 60 cents on the dollar or something. Right, yeah. And they spend the money elsewhere. And so, and my point is that regardless of the system, you have overhead costs, you have all of these problems, you have unintended usage. But we have to rethink our, our, our whole system and provide people with the resources they need to afford the necessities and have an effective safety net and hold them responsible for those uh, for those actions. You know, that's where we ne- actually need to take our entire income support program toward because the government is not good at running these programs. The government is very good at giving away money. That's something they're very good at. They're not good at managing 340B programs, managing healthcare systems, running Medicaid, run- all of these things they're, they're actually really bad at, but they're very good at distributing income. And so we, we need to kind of work toward a simpler, more direct system that empowers individuals. You certainly will have people that, you, you know, that will exploit the system and you, we have to do our best to manage that. And, uh, but we have to do that today anyway. I think that's what the example of, of, of food stamps um, is, is so important is that people tend to think we don't have that problem now. Well, of course we do. Uh, but if we did that in the case of healthcare and in the case of um, what the goal of 340B is, we could much more effectively help uh, lower income people afford the medicines they need uh, and the healthcare they need more broadly with a, a, a direct cash transfer than we can through the circuitous route of 340B, which is really just a way of propping up hospitals who are basically trying to defray all of the other costs and mandates that other parts of the system uh, ha- has done. For people who aren't actually getting the benefits, I suppose, it 
the the three forty B is causing lots of distortions in your market into your way of life and conducting your business, which is which is not helpful. And so that's the that's the thing that would be most helpful to the healthcare system for most providers and systems to to not have to deal with anymore. Uh, what's the I guess you know what's the landscape look like right now? I mean, it, the Trump administration has been okay. I mean, they certainly recognize some problems with price transparency. I f- find that their policies are generally not too out of line with sort of what's been going on in the past. So it hasn't not that radical, I guess. But is there is there any chance that this is going to get fixed? Or I mean, what do you, or do you think people are just looking for a gigantic, you know, massive overhaul of the healthcare system, and no one's looking to fix little problems like three forty B? I think there there is a push uh, to address 340B. There's different organizations uh, out there uh, that are uh, are pushing for reforms, and it would be certainly be something that uh, could help. You know, the the environment is is undoubtedly difficult. I I actually would take a different view on uh, the, the benefits of the free market core of the Trump administration. Um, I think they've actually been very anti-market, but. Uh, that's a different conversation. Um, well, yeah. But, well, I guess that, I guess my my only point is that they've been pretty much like all other previous administrations that <laughs> they've been fairly anti-market. Uh, yeah, I, and so I, I think it is possible. You know, a lot of it is education. You know, part of the problem is, you know, if you go out there and say, you know, what we need to do, we need to reform three forty B. I mean, it's just just the name of it from a marketing perspective is <laughs> boring. It's you, your eyes glaze over and, you know, just the discussion we've had to had, have, have here, you know, it's, it's one of those esoteric topics that, uh, it, so it, it's difficult to get attention to and it's difficult to, to trace that program's impact on the broader system. I mean, to say, well, we're using more expensive oncology and cardiac drugs than necessary because of 340B, you know, it, it, it takes a while to get people there. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and people don't directly see the cost of it. Right. I mean, that's the problem with lots right. of, lots of programs, right? Unless if you don't, not directly impacted, like what's my tax bracket versus, you know, how does this right. affect the fact that my, my medication's 20% more expensive. It's hard to really try and ferret out the reason for that. Well, and and it's even hard. You know, you, medicine is twenty percent more expensive. It's it's hard. There's so many factors out there. What is the impact? You know, that itself is hard to discern because you have. You, we know the cost shifting is occurring, but you know, precisely quantifying that is difficult. Yeah, and you probably could argue it's impossible, right? Because you don't know what what percentage of decisions made for changing formularies to more expensive drugs were because of this program specifically, or if they just have an impact of forty percent or fifty. There's just no way to sort of determine those costs. And so it, sure for someone scoring it, if they're, if you want to get really in the weeds, like with a congressional bu- budget office, it's probably difficult for them to even try and f- anticipate the difference, uh, the differences sort of bill would make, you know, if you were to reform parts of it. Right. No, absolutely. Now there have been some great studies that have been done on it and uh, the GEO has done some nice work and they, they've, they've gone out there and they've shown that these effects are there and you know, you can, we can certainly get our, our arms around the trunk of the tree on the problem. And when you do that, you, you, you certainly, you know, direct, we know which direction this is and we, we know that it's adverse impact. So, um, you know, from that perspective, we get a sense, but when you try to precisely define it, you know, that, that, that's where you, uh, can lose your way. Well, this has been a, um, fascinating discussion. I've, I've, enjoyed, I've learned a ton. Uh, and 
I'm sure the listeners have as well. And is there anything else that we missed that we should know about the 340B program uh, that's going on right now or some other thing that we didn't discuss? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I guess one thing I, I, I would want to emphasize in terms of, I don't know if we hit this hard enough, which is the shifting of focus in the hospitals where we see more and more 340B hospitals tend to spend less and less on kind of charity care. I, I think that's something when you talk about all the other issues that we've talked about, that one factor is also something worth remembering because the program is designed to help lower income people. And if the uh, growth of the program is such that it tends to focus less and less on the target population and more and more hospitals who serve middle and upper income families and, and, and persons, um, that is showing kind of that this program is not only imposing costs, but it's losing its way. And I don't know if I hit that uh, hard enough as we've been talking, but that is something I, I think is important to emphasize that the growth of the program is getting away from its intended uh, or targeted audience. And that when we talk about focusing the criteria, that's an important part of it as well. Beyond all of the adverse impacts on the broader system that we're not even serving the intended population anymore. Right. It's just serving as a general subsidy to all hospitals is kind of what you're yeah. saying. It, it'd be sort of like exactly. sending, well, it'd be sending up food stamps to every per, every American, you know, and not everybody needs them. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, or even worse, sending it randomly. Right. <laughs> right. So then it misses people who do need it. Right. Exactly. You know, you, when you talk about the, the charity care, I mean, are you suggesting that there's, that hospitals are doing less charity care than they were before because of 340B or just that, because there are more hospitals involved now, many of them who do very little charity work, that the overall amount of charity work in, done by hospitals within the program has gone down. That, the, the, the latter, that okay. the expansion program has been to hospitals who are doing less. So on average, you know, Bill Gates walks into a bar, the average person's there. Um, <laughs> that type of impact. Right. Okay. Well, where can people follow you on social media and follow more of your work? Uh, it, you can follow the work of, of both the Pacific Research Institute and the, the Center for Medical Economics and Innovation at uh, pacificresearch.org or medecon.org. Uh, we, we have a, a, a lot of resources on, on drug prices uh, and on um, healthcare reform, uh, broadly speaking. Uh, and so um, we, those would be great resources. Are you on the Twitter or the Facebook? I am at, at Wayne Weingarten. I don't. I don't tweet as much as I probably should. Maybe I can uh, start doing that more. <laughs> thank you so much for being for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. This was fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Paradox. If you like what the Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.